If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 14. Luke and chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 12 through 24 in our time together this morning as we continue to make our way through uh, this incredible gospel. Two weeks ago, we started chapter 14, and uh, we'll continue in the discourse that Jesus begun there uh, from 12 to 24, and then next week we'll finish off chapter 14. So Luke and 14, uh, it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 14, starting in verse 12. The Holy Spirit says, He said also to the man, Jesus did, who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The verse said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Amen. This is the word of God, and may God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. When you hear the word hospitality, I wonder what you think of. Maybe you think of being a host, of making a meal, of having people over to your house. Maybe you think of so-called southern hospitality, something southern states prize themselves on that no one can quite define with precision. Maybe when you hear the word hospitality, a person comes to mind that you know uh, for how they open their home or uh, to you because they have, or because they have a certain gift of hosting or entertaining. Maybe none of those things that I said come to your mind when you think of hospitality. Maybe to you it's something entirely different than what I've mentioned. But in any case, in whatever definition you have for hospitality in your mind, I wonder how you think of yourself in relation to it. In other words, when you think of hospitality, do you believe yourself to be someone who is hospitable? When I was thinking about this topic this week, I was reminded of a story that I saw from BBC uh, a few years ago that was written in light of a passing of a man that you've probably never heard of. His name was Jim Haynes. And the story was about the radical hospitality 
of Haynes, and he was an American who lived in France. And Haynes, says the BBC, was known as the man who invited the world over for dinner. That was the nickname they gave him. Why? Because for more than 40 years, on Sunday nights, he held informal dinners at his home where anyone was invited. Uh, People would squeeze into his apartment, shoulder to shoulder, strangers struck up conversations, balancing their dinner plates on paper, their dinner on paper plates and reaching over each other to press the plastic spout on a communal box of wine. Jim, very fancy, yes? Jim had open, operated open house policy at his home every Sunday evening for 40 years. Absolutely anyone was welcome to come in for the informal dinner. All you had to do was phone or email and he would add your name to the list. No questions were asked. You just put a donation in an envelope when you arrived. Well, at the dinner's peak, Jim would welcome up to 120 guests at a time, filling his little apartment and spilling out into the cobbled back garden. An estimated 150,000 people had come over over the years. The door was always open, says Amanda Morrow, an Australian journalist who stayed with Jim for a year and a half. It was a revolving door of guests. Jim never said no to anyone. Vicki Baker said, here was a man who had spent time with Lennon and Bowie, who was once friends with Sonia Orwell and used to walk around Paris with Samuel Beckett, and yet he made everyone feel special. Every connection mattered, end quote. I wonder what you think of that. Is something like that what you thought of when you thought of hospitality initially? If you were someone who thought, yeah, I'm hospitable, when I asked a moment ago, how does your hospitality compare to Jim Haynes? Does your hospitality look like that? Or would you open your home to complete strangers like he did? But now, lest we think of hospitality as merely uh, the way we use our home, let's think of hospitality from a different angle, okay? About a week ago, uh, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, went to be with the Lord. Uh, If you've been here for a while, you know I quote him quite a bit. But after his death, there was a lot of tributes, of course, that came out, and almost all of them commented on how kind he was. Now, he had he's a, he's a megachurch pastor in New York, founded a church planning network, founded the Gospel Coalition. People didn't talk about the church size or the size, how many churches he planted. All of them said how kind he was and how he made everyone feel special, even people who weren't like him or didn't share his belief. How even though he was successful and well-known, you'd never know it just by talking to him. Wyatt Graham said this about Keller. He said, I met him at a time in my life where I had become a bit cynical of well-known pastors. There seems to be a rule that when a person receives much fame, they often become inaccessible and entitled. Tim Keller communicated nothing of that to me. He just seemed like a guy named Tim. And he seemed to care about me. With all the testimonies coming out, and now over the years, it seems plain to me Tim cared about people, and it didn't matter who they were. Is that what you think of when you think of hospitality? See, if you look at it from that perspective, hospitality cannot be confined to a living room or a kitchen table, but goes with you wherever you go. It's a way of life. That's how Keller lived, because he was someone profoundly affected by the gospel to the point that he understood hospitality is a way of being in the world. This is what's at play in our text this morning. This text is all about hospitality, which is a topic all over the pages of Scripture, but seems to be rarely talked about. 
And what I think we'll find in our exploration of this text this morning is that hospitality is more important than we think. That is a reflection of what we think of the gospel. And it's a reflection of even what we think about God. So let's divide this text into two parts, okay? It's naturally divided this way in your Bibles. The what of hospitality and the why of hospitality. So the what will come from verses 12 through 14, and the why will come from verses 15 through 24. So the what and the why of hospitality. So first, the what of hospitality. You may recall, as I mentioned a moment ago from a few weeks ago, that Luke verses 14, verses 1 through 24, all takes place in the same setting, okay? Jesus is invited, if you just look at verse 1, to a Pharisee's house for a Sabbath meal, and everything that takes place in the following 24 verses of chapter 14 occurs at this meal, okay? In 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man with dropsy. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their callousness and hypocrisy. Then in 7 through 11, Jesus gives a short parable about humility when he notices how people in the meal come and seek the seat of honor. He says, don't seek first place, for then you may be publicly shamed when the host comes up and tells you your seat is actually in the back. Rather, he says, seek last place, and God will elevate you in the end. Now we see Jesus continue his teaching and rebuke in verses 12 through 14. Let's read them again. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus' lesson here are reactions against our natural dispositions, right? Jesus sees the way in which humans naturally exercise hospitality and shows us why those aren't all that special or unique, or perhaps aren't even technically hospitality per se. Now, what are those ways? Well, there are at least two, right, that we na- ways that we naturally uh, do hospitality. For one, we typically give hospitality to people who are like us. And now he says, or who have shared interests or other such commonalities. The second way we tend to treat people better when we know they can benefit us or repay us. So we exercise hospitality in order to receive some kind of favor or reciprocity. You see, Jesus is wondering what's so special or commendable about those two ways that we naturally do hospitality. We have seen, yes, how radical the kingdom ethic is in Luke's gospel, haven't we? We have seen over and over again that Jesus' kingdom flips things as they are on their head. We have seen that the way in which kingdom citizens are to live in this world is utterly different than the way those not in the kingdom live their lives. So surely when it comes to the topic of hospitality, the kingdom way is counter-worldly way to live. Think about these two again. Who is it that we tend to be hospitable to? Who is it that we tend to welcome into our homes? Who is it that we are the kindest or most caring towards? Who is it that we give the most grace and benefit of the doubt to? Who is it that we will go out of our way for? Who is it that we gravitate to most of all? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? We gravitate to and surround ourselves with, show kindness to and welcome those who we are related to or those who are most like us. 
Your closest friends are probably those who are in a similar age, yes? Life stage, socioeconomic bracket, or so, share some other interest or hobby or opinions as you do. It's like there's, isn't it like there's a gravitational pull to people like us? And so, of course, we're hospitable to them. But what's Jesus saying? He said, is he saying never have those people over to your house? Is that what he's saying? Of course not. But what he is saying is that there isn't anything special about that. Don't pagans do that? Don't people who don't know Jesus at all do that? Let's ask it another way. Do you need Jesus in order to love people who are just like you? Do you need Jesus to be kind to people who are just like you? Do you need Jesus to eat at a table with someone just like you? Again, this isn't to say that's necessarily bad, but it's also not otherworldly. You don't need the gospel for that. And not of not its natural disposition of even fallen and unredeemed hearts. To be sure, that's what's comfortable. And if there's anything we love as a society, it's what? Comfort. <laughs> that's one of the supreme gods of our culture. And to surround ourselves with people like us is comfortable and it's convenient. What's inconvenient and uncomfortable is what to do, to do what Jesus says in verse 13. We want people who will love us back, don't we? We want people who can reciprocate these acts of hospitality. But is that kind, the kind of love that Jesus talks about so often in the Gospels? Charles Coral said this, Jesus taught that loving only those who express love in return cheapens and degrades Christian love. This kind of sentiment is not true love, but is actually self-serving pragmatism. Clearly, one of the key words, if you look at verses 12 through 14, is repaid. That's one of the key words of 12 through 14, repaid. Everyone knew in the context of Jesus' words how the world works, which is that, the most, that most relationships are built on reciprocity. And is our world any different than that? Aren't our lives full of relationships that are little more than an exchange of goods and services? Most of our relationships are contractual, aren't they, in that way? This is the idea that if you do this, the other party should do that, and if the other party fails to do their end, we are free to sever the relationship, right? We thus treat humans like they're nothing more than a business that we could take or leave once we feel like we are not receiving enough, or at least not receiving much as much as we are giving. This is how we think, and how can we not? Society tells us, right, A, that we should not only get everything we want, but we're owed good things, and B, our lives are full of reciprocal relationships with businesses and contracts to such an extent that our minds are constantly operating as consumers. Why would someone invite a rich neighbor? Doesn't Jesus mention a rich neighbor? Why would somebody invite a rich neighbor to a meal? Because then they could call in a favor later. Don't you see? We call this networking in our time. We want to know people who could do something for us, which is why we gravitate to people who have perceived power. If we are hospitable to them, then they can eventually do something what? For us. Jesus says, this isn't a hospitality at all. Why? Because it's self-serving. It's not for the other person. It's for ourselves. It's because we want to receive a benefit. And look, even if we never schmoz the powerful or important, 
we still may expect reciprocity from those we do give hospitality to. Even if there are ones who are like us. Let's put it like this. If we expect things from others in return for how we treat them or what we do for them, then we aren't thinking correctly about hospitality. If we ever think they have never blank, even though I have done this or that for them, then we're thinking wrongly. Any thought of recompense should fly out the window in Jesus' ethic. This is why he says, don't invite your friends or family over because he knows then they or you will think they need to pay you back by having you over at their house. He knows we want to exchange goods and keep a record of what we did for others so we could cash it in at some other point or hold it against them if we did A and they never did B. And why are they so unappreciative? If they truly received my hospitality, they would repay me in kind. That's what we think. That's not hospitality, is it? You know, this week I was watching the show The Office. You guys like The Office? For about the hundredth time, okay? And I came to an episode that fit right into this. In this particular episode, one of the characters named Dwight, he woke up one morning, and they live in Scranton, Pennsylvania, okay? He woke up one morning early to drive to New York and to buy New York-style bagels for his coworkers and then to drive back in time to work. Now, this is out of character for Dwight because he isn't typically generous or selfless person, nor does he ever do anything for his coworkers. Now, everyone is surprised, but they thank him, and they take a bagel, to which he says somewhat to himself, oh, don't mention it, you owe me one. You all owe me one. It doesn't take long before he reveals to the camera that he was doing favors for people so that everyone will owe him one in return so that he can cash it in later to get what he wants. Now, the rest of the episode is him seeing, you know, doing a bunch of favors just so people will owe him, Right? That may seem ridiculous to us, but is it really unlike how we tend to operate? True hospitality is not built on reciprocity. True hospitality gives no thought to exchanging goods and services or of repayment. True hospitality doesn't keep a list of the good we've done for others in hopes that they will return the favor or we could bring it up later to cash in or so that they could elevate us in some way. Listen, true hospitality is loving people for Christ's sake. True hospitality is serving and giving of oneself without any kind of record-keeping or hoping of repayment. True hospitality has no time for reciprocity because it is so utterly, utterly focused on the other person that receiving something back doesn't even enter into one's mind. Says Daryl Bach, the best hospitality is that which is given, not exchanged. This is why Jesus says, don't have a banquet for your family and friends, people like you, powerful people who can owe you a favor. Instead, have a banquet for people who not only will not pay you back, but cannot. See, if we're asking How can I be hospitable to people without thought of record-keeping or reciprocity? Maybe even thinking about that. How do I even do this? And Jesus' answer to that question is this, by being hospitable to people who couldn't pay you back even if they wanted to. Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. How will we be blessed, Jesus? Because God will repay you in the end. They can't repay you. 
but God can, and he will. If you are hospitable to the weak and the marginalized and the ignored and the poor and the looked down upon and the disabled. The message of Jesus here is at least this. There are people in your town. There are people in your city and in your community who will never be invited to a home or to have a meal because they can't reciprocate. There are people around you who are hungry and ignored and in both need of sustenance and the love of Christ. And they can benefit from your hospitality more than your friends and your family and your affinity group. Is that why what Jesus is saying here? Jesus wants us to invite people into our homes and to our tables who will invariably take us out of our comfort zone. People are a different race and socioeconomic status or age or have an infirmity or disability. People who never get to eat that kind of food you get to eat or sit in a house as nice as yours. Jesus wants us to show extravagant kindness to people who, when they are leaving, cannot say, thank you for having us over. We'll have you over at our house sometime. Because they may very well not have a home or a table or the means by which to provide a meal for anyone besides themselves because of their poverty and their lack. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about hospitality. Did you know that? What you might not know is that it's almost always in the context of love of strangers and foreigners and aliens, people not like us. Matt Chandler says, if I had to come up with a biblical de- definition for hospitality, I'd say it means to give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle of friends. It's opening your life and your house to those who are different than you. Let's take, let's take a step further. If we don't show hospitality to the poor and to people who can't repay us, to people who are different than us, then we aren't hospitable. At least not according to the way the Bible defines it. Nor is hospitality, see, the hospitality is not the same as generosity. You can be generous and not hospitable because you can be generous from an arm's length, can't you? From a distance. You can be generous without being vulnerable or risking. And biblical hospitality has an air of vulnerability, discomfort, and risk to it. You see that from Jesus' command here? Don't you see that? When he says, invite to your dinner the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, he's saying, allow people into your home, to your table, into your space, and be vulnerable towards them because you're allowing them into your life. That's what he's saying. If people are allowed into your life, especially if they're unlike you, then they are close enough to hurt you, aren't they? And Jesus says, it's worth the risk. The kind of hospitality Jesus calls for strikes at our idols in many ways, I think. If we have idols of racial superiority and pride or of wealth or of possessions or of family or of comfort or of control or reputation, the Jesus' call here threatens all those things. It threatens the tidy lives that we try to create and maintain for ourselves. It wrecks our categories. It puts us constantly on our heels. That's how you know it's from the otherworldly kingdom and a category-wrecking king. It's hard for me to think about radical hospitality without thinking about Rosaria Butterfield. Have any of you guys heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Her and her husband practice hospitality in a way that I have never seen before or heard about. Um, it's even more radical than Jim Haynes, okay, that we talked about at the beginning. 
You can read about it in her book. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And we actually have a, a copy available at the bookstore if you want to grab it after service. But the Butterfields, they have some kind of hospitality and openness of their home built into literally every day's schedule. And in one of the chapters, she talks about a family in their church who developed a sort of disdain for the Butterfields' life of hospitality. They don't like it. Uh, the other family thought there was something wrong with the way they lived, hospitable lives. They thought it was just too much. Well, one day after church, the Butterfield son was talking to one of the children from that family about Thanksgiving. And he asked, who came over to your house for Thanksgiving? And the boy replied, two chairs and no more. That's how he replied. Two chairs and no more. Uh, he's confused. Rosaria's son asked, can you elaborate on what this means? And the boy from the other family explained that their motto for their family was, family first, so two chairs and no more which meant that they had only two extra dining room chairs so that they could never have more than two guests over. Rosaria then said this, The two chairs and no more family were not mean-spirited people, but their idols left no room for hospitality. They simply had too much, and people who have too much often take themselves too seriously to actually give themselves to others in a way that God's hospitality commands requires. Before telling that story, she said this biting word. It made me feel bad about myself, so let's, I want to invite you into feeling bad with me, okay? This is what she said. <laughs> so what kind of household is absolutely incompetent at the practice of hospitality, utterly and completely incapable? It's as useless as grasping at the wind. The household that loves things too much and loves people too little cannot honor God through the practice of radical, ordinary hospitality. The household that has too much and thinks too highly of material possessions has become seduced by the idols of acquisition and achievement. If you love acquisition and achievement, you will never practice hospitality. You might have like-minded people who come and bow before your idols, but you won't ever practice hospitality. Christians who have too much are the ones prohibited from practicing hospitality. They have so many cluttered idols that they could give nothing at all. Biblical hospitality is an idol destroyer, and it should be. Whatever reason we come up with as to why we can't do what Jesus says here, we could likely find an idol behind it. Could be an idol of time and busyness or of possessions or of pride or of one kind or another or back to the idol of consumerism, reciprocity, and comfort. Now, the question is this, okay? What will happen if you practice this kind of hospitality? It seems like a lot, doesn't it? Typically, we want to know, right, if we're going to do something, what's in it for me? Well, it's clearly not reciprocity from those who are practicing hospitality towards. They can't pay us back at all. So what will happen? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14, doesn't he? We will be, what? Blessed. By simply being self-giving in this way. Blessing others, says Jesus, is a blessing. Here's another radical paradigm shift. It isn't in being given things that we will be blessed. It's in giving of ourselves that we will be blessed. In this scenario, Jesus sees a blessing in being a blessing. But further, Jesus says, even though the poor can't pay you back, God can. At the resurrection at the end of the age, God will give you your payback. Daryl Bach says at the resurrection, when the stewardship of one's actions is weighed, such kindness will be paid back by the Father. 
Therefore, Jesus wishes for his followers to direct one's attention outward. So even if no one else knows about your radical hospitality, Jesus says God sees. And he'll reward you for how you treated the poor and the weak and those the world has no time for. He sees, he knows, he'll get you back in a good way. But now you may be wondering, why should you do any of this? Well, what's the motivation for welcoming the weak, the needy, the disabled, the marginalized, the helpless who can do nothing for you into your home and your life and your church? Why reach out to people who aren't like you and become vulnerable? Why go out of your way for people who can't pay you back? Now, payback from God may seem like a very good reason, but there's a better one that Jesus gives. Here's why. Here's why. Because that's the kind of hospitality God offered, offers, and will offer to you and me. We are the weak and needy. We are the helpless and hopeless. We are the ones who cannot pay God back. We cannot reciprocate to God. He became purposefully vulnerable and weak to reach us, the vulnerable and the weak. He left the throne above and took on poverty to enter our mess and welcome those who respond to his offer of forgiveness to his table. This brings us to point two, the why of hospitality. Let's consider the parable in verses 15 through 24. Jesus is telling those at the Pharisee's house to stop inviting over their friends and the well-to-do to dinner in order to earn some favor or get some return on their investment. Some fella interrupts Jesus. He, likely there's an awkward silence, right? And he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know who this guy is. Why he said, we don't know why he said this. Okay. Like I said, he may be trying to break up the tension. It might be like, how you ever been in a situation, an awkward, tense conversation, you just blurt something out in order to kind of break the tension in silence? But Jesus kind of ignores him for the most part, and he launches in this parable that we typically call the parable of the great banquet. This is what Jesus says. He says, there was a man, and he was having a great banquet, and he invited many people to come, and this invite was sort of how we think of RSVPs, okay? People respond to the invite saying, yeah, I'll come to your banquet. Well, when the day arrived and the meal was ready, another invite went out uh, where it was telling the people the meal is ready, it's time to come to the banquet, okay? But what happened? Everyone who was invited made the excuse as to why they couldn't come. One man said he couldn't come because he bought some land and he wanted to go inspect it. So here's the madness of it. He bought a piece of land he ever, never even saw, okay? And now he was going to go inspect it. Another fella said he couldn't go because he bought some oxen and he had to go examine them. So again, a guy bought something before he ever even laid eyes on it. Imagine if your spouse called you one day and said they just bought five cars and now they're going to go and see what they look like. That's kind of like this man. A third fella said he couldn't go because he just got married. So he RSVP'd even though he knew he was getting married. On these excuses, Craig Blomberg said, what all the excuses share is an extraordinary lameness. They're meant to strike the hearer as ridiculous and to point to the absurdity of any excuse for rejecting God's call to his kingdom. This is what the parable comes down to. The kingdom has arrived with Jesus. He is the kingdom shown up in a person. The invite to come into the kingdom is now. And so we must respond when the kingdom comes to us. When Jesus comes and convicts our hearts and calls us to repent and give him allegiance, that's when it's time to respond. But at the end of the age, 
there will be a great banquet at the marriage supper of Christ. So what's the problem? Here's the problem. People make all kinds of lame excuses to not respond to the kingdom. And will thus find themselves outside the banquet at the end of the age. The lesson is for those who are Christian and those who are not because they continue resisting the call to repent and submit to Christ. For the unbeliever, the question is this. Are you making excuses as to why you are delaying submitting to Jesus? For the Christian, the question is this. Are you making excuses as to why you are delaying obedience? Is there a reason why you're holding off on living a life of reckless abandon for the kingdom of Christ? Is there a reason you can't practice the hospitality that we've been talking about at length? Is there a reason why you won't give yourself more to the church and discipleship and ordinary obedience? We have excuses, and this is why this parable is so stinging. As Blomberg says, it doesn't even matter what the excuses are, or whether they're good or not, because Jesus is showing us that every excuse to reject God's invitation to obedience is, in the end, lame. <coughs> Excuse me. Says Klein Snodgrass, whether the excuses are legitimate or paper thin is debated, but for Luke, this question is irrelevant. His point is that no excuse is valid when one faces the kingdom. Now look, look again at the excuses that these men gave. Aren't they similar to the three dialogues of discipleship in 9, 57 through 62 that we saw? Or the parable of the soils of chapter 8 and of the requirements of discipleship that we'll look at next week if you just look down in the rest of chapter 14? Property, occupation, and family. Those are the three excuses. And there are also three primary reasons why people won't submit to Jesus or why people don't give themselves more to the kingdom and obey the king's command. And these, property, occupation, and family, they're essential commitments to life, aren't they? But they aren't to be given as reasons for delayed obedience. We may think they are good excuses, but in light of the kingdom, they are lame dodges and incomparable to the eternal kingdom of God. Property, occupation, and family are important, aren't they? Yes? This isn't a trap, okay? <laughs> are they important? Yes. Jesus doesn't say they're not important. He doesn't say don't have property. He doesn't say don't work or care about your family. But he is saying that they aren't to take greater precedence than loyalty to him and his kingdom. Those who say with their words or functionally that those things are more important to tend to than the kingdom and they are used as an excuse for the lack of obedience, well, they very well may find themselves outside the banquet in the end. He says... If you don't want to come into the kingdom now, what makes you think you'll get in in the end? These characters in the parable are saying that there's something more important than attending the banquet, aren't they? I mean, the, the third guy, look at the third guy. He didn't even try to give an excuse. All he does is say, I just got married, I can't come. So what? What does getting married have to do with going to a dinner? That people should be responding eagerly to the banquet. People should be rushing to be part of the kingdom. People should hear the message of Jesus and hear his gracious invitation to come in and be thrilled and honored to accept it. But instead, they're too busy with possessions and family and offer excuses as to why now is not the right time. But friends, Jesus is saying that there will come a time when the invitation expires and who will 
they have to blame. Can't blame God. He graciously sent out the invite. If they find themselves outside the kingdom in the end, they can only blame themselves for refusing the invitation. Jesus is telling us that we cannot presume that we will be in the kingdom in the end, especially if we are over and over and over again saying, I'll be there. Then when time comes to enter in or obey, we say, actually, I'm busy, maybe some other time. We can't presume upon anything of ourselves to get us into the kingdom. It doesn't work like that. Entrance in the kingdom comes on Jesus' terms and not ours. Too many around us are presuming that they'll be in the kingdom based on some other thing that isn't Jesus. Do you realize this? They grew up in church. They tell people they're Christian. They're good people. They're nice people. They're respected people. They're sometimes church-going people. They're good family people. They're patriotic. They're well-meaning. They're this or that, but if they haven't responded truly to Christ's invitation to kingdom and bent knee to him, then they aren't in. And if they continue to refuse until they die, they will stay out. And whose fault would that be? Only theirs. Some hear the invitation and they initially say, yeah, I accept, I'll be there. And then in the end, not be there because they didn't follow that invite with kingdom action rooted in submission to King Jesus. Is that what happened to people here in this parable? They said yes at first. But when it came time to actually enter in, they came with excuses as to why they just couldn't go in. Do we not see the same thing today with people making initial professions of faith, but then never following Jesus in any meaningful way? And aren't we susceptible to making excuses for sin or delayed obedience ourselves? The problem is, there are a lot of people who've gone right up to the edge of the kingdom and never taken that step into it. There are a lot of people who think the essence of being a Christian is to improve morally or merely mental assent to set of truth, to respond to the invitation without actually coming into the kingdom, to have head knowledge without a transformed heart. What many people don't understand is becoming a Christian is actually crossing totally into a new way of life. You must actually enter the banquet. A mere RSVP is only the first step. You have to enter in. You know, in 2006, I received orders to be stationed in Anchorage, Alaska. And because I received my orders so late, uh, Sila, Ariel, and I had to drive from Colorado to Alaska. That was in the before times when I had only one kid. So we prepped, and we can you imagine? We prepped and we packed. We drove up to Canada, okay? <laughs> and getting up to Canada did me no good. If I only got to the border and didn't take a step to cross over, all of that work of packing and driving would do me no good if I just got to the border and stayed outside looking in. All of that improvement on my location would have done nothing at all if I didn't cross over. Because even for all the cost and time, if I stayed on this side of the border, I was still 100% outside of Canada. I had to take that step to cross over. And once I did, I was in a different nation with different laws, different governance, different standards, different currency, and more. In stepping into this other nation, I had to submit myself to it because I crossed from one realm to another. 
So many people have thought that being a Christian is just improving themselves. Whether morally or ethically or politically or socially, they have advanced all the way up to the border, but they haven't actually stepped into the kingdom of Christ and into the new realm because they haven't submitted themselves to the king. They've gone all the way, but they haven't taken that one single step then crossed over. Being close to the border still makes one 100% outside of it. Accepting an invitation without entering the kingdom still makes you 100% outside of the kingdom. And part of the reason why many haven't crossed over into the kingdom is because of what it entails. If I went up to the border of Canada that day and said to the fellow there, look at all the way that I've traveled, what will that get me? You know what you say? Nothing. You have to cross over the line. Some people convinced that Christianity is a safe religion of their family heritage, have traveled all the way to the border and said, look at all my improvements. Look how I'm moral. Look at all my accomplishments. Look how I pray before meals and how I want prayer in schools and how I vote the right way and how I'm nice to my spouse and kids and how I'm respected and well thought of by my peers and how I'm not as bad as some people. And they don't ever ask, what will that get me? Because they assume that all of that must have gotten them a place into eternity. They think they've earned it. They presumed on things that they have done rather than trusting in Christ's righteousness. But Jesus looks at that and he says, but you haven't taken a step into the kingdom. You must surrender. Snodgrass says, we cannot have the kingdom on our own terms. The invitation of grace brings with it demand. At stake is the issue of a person's identity. It's not enough to wear the right label. Rather, the kingdom must shape identity so that one has a whole different set of concerns. The warning of Luke must be heard. The biggest obstacle to discipleship are possessions and family, but they are also the biggest opportunities for discipleship. And so what does the banquet host do upon learning that his invited guests can't come in because of their lame excuses? He says, go invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. Why, that sounds exactly like who Jesus said we should invite in our homes in verse 13, doesn't it? God is clearly the banquet host in this parable. And Jesus is showing us that God takes the initiative to seek the unworthy and the outcast and the hopeless and the helpless and the weak and the ignored to come into the kingdom and sit at the seat of the honor at his table. And it is the people who see themselves as most unworthy to go to the banquet that will be the most eager to accept the offer of forgiveness. Let me see that the ones... I need you to see this. Don't you see the ones who turn down the invitation to the banquet are those who have other priorities that they see as more important than going to eat with the king. In other words, they have too much and they think they have no need of the banquet. They aren't hungry. They aren't thirsty. They aren't desperate. They're full of other things and aren't astounded that they would be extended this lavish grace to come sit at the table. So who responds? those who are flabbergasted that they would be invited in. Don't you see? My friend, if you are to be in the kingdom, you must see that you are in the paradigm of the gospel, poor and lame and blind. You have no business at the banquet. But the king came and sought you and invited you to his table. The hospitality of God calls for you to show how the hospitality you've received is what you were to give. 
The going out and calling people who shouldn't be at the table to come in has happened when God came down and took on flesh to call you. Those who think they should be there to the point that they say, no thanks, I have other stuff going on, are the ones who will miss it because they presume upon grace. They don't see themselves as sinners. They aren't awestruck with the gospel, so they stay outside. Those who see that they have nothing to commend themselves to the banquet host, however, they will eagerly receive the invitation to come in. God, therefore, is calling for the same hospitality from you that he has shown you. You know, the servant goes out a third time, doesn't he? To the highways and the byways, and he compels people to come in. And you know, you know who's hanging out at the highways and the hedges? People outside the city, outcasts, different ethnic group, tanners, traders, beggars, foreigners, strangers, people who are requ- required access to the city but weren't allowed in. What does the banquet host do? He tells them, you come in and feast. Who's on the inside of the banquet in the end? Poor, lame, blind, crippled, foreigners, strangers, people from different ethnicities, people who no one would want at their table, but this banquet host does. Who's on the outside of the banquet? People who have enough property, possessions, and family concerns to keep them busy and full. Jesus is asking you this, which are you? And then if you have the humility to count ourselves among the riffraff who don't belong at the table, but are welcomed with open arms from an abundantly gracious host, Jesus says this, go and do likewise. There will be people left out of the kingdom who thought they would be there. But there will, that will have been their choice. They were too busy with other things. They were too full to admit they were empty. Their priorities were skewed. The kingdom simply didn't factor in. And there will be people, a whole lot of people, who will be in the kingdom, who will be surprised that they are there. And why? Because they saw their need. They saw the beauty of the banquet host. They saw that they had no business at the table to the point that when the hospitable host invited them, they were at first astounded and then came bounding in with eagerness and joy. Jesus says, here's the invitation. Will you enter in? And there is an urgency to his words. When he says compel, he doesn't mean force. He means urgently persuade. And that's what he's doing to you right now. He is persuading you with his beauty and kindness and grace and hospitality and offer of forgiveness to come and enter in now and forever. Will you accept his invitation? If you do, and if you have, You should find yourself surprised to be in the banquet with so glorious a king as you count yourself among the riffraff. But then, says Jesus, you should imitate your Lord by showing radical hospitality to people that others would be surprised that you have invited to your table. You should go out and compel others to come into the kingdom. You should give yourself away to people unlike you. And in this way, you will be imaging your Christ and your King. To not do so would be forget the radical grace He has shown us and to presume to be more particular and less humble than our Creator God who came down and suffered and died in order to bring the least worthy in and to offer them the best seat in the house. You want a reason why you should be radically hospitable? There's your reason. Would you be like Him?